0: Your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. We begin a new series this morning through this book. It is really the continuing story of the entire books of Samuel. Originally, they were not two separate books but one. So we actually are picking up the story found in the books of Samuel. How do you tend to view your enemies? How do you most often feel about them? Have you ever concluded silently in your own mind, my life would be so much better off if they just weren't around, if that person would go away? Maybe for you it's a boss or a coworker that is driving you up the wall. Perhaps it's a sibling, maybe even a spouse or some other family member. That makes interactions very difficult and uncomfortable for you. Maybe there's even a certain member of this church that you would rather never interact with. Rather than with whom you are covenanted together to treat in a Christ-like manner. How do you tend to view your enemies? This morning we return to the story of Saul and David. As we begin this study in 2 Samuel. We ended our study of 1 Samuel, about a year and a half ago now. And we've been talking about coming back to this story. We're delighted to do so this morning. Now this story in chapter 1 picks up right where we left off. In desperation, David, you'll remember, had fled into the land of the Philistines. He'd run from Saul in desperation. He had successfully deceived a, a Philistine rather warlord, thinking that He had turned his back on his country, that he was fighting for the Philistines. And instead, he's making these secret raids against them. In 1 Samuel 29, we saw David with all of the Philistines preparing for this massive military campaign against Israel. And God providentially spares David from actually fighting against Israel. In chapter 30, when David returns from that gathering to his base in the city of Ziklag, he finds that marauding Amalekite raiders have kidnapped the wives, children, and property of he and his men. It's this massive crisis. He asks God for direction. Do I pursue them? And God tells him to go and destroy these enemies. And David then returns to Ziklag. Ziklag. In chapter 31, the narration turns its attention again specifically and solely to Saul. And we read of his final moments of defeat, of shame, of God's judgment. Now, as we turn the page to the continuing story, we have already been told what happens to Saul and Jonathan there in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. But we find that David does not yet know. Let's read just the first two verses that we heard read just a few moments ago, ago of Second Samuel chapter 1. Verse 1, this is God's word to us, his people. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Let's ask for God's help as we consider our text together this morning. Father, we need your grace to understand the truths of your word written by the hand of your spirit through men whom you divinely inspired. We want to understand the truth. We want to obey the truth and apply it to our lives. Help us to do what we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage could be summarized or summed up in the one word that appears six times in our text. It's the word fallen. Our passage breaks up nicely into two major sections. We'll consider the text together in four main points. First, the exposure of falsehood in verses 1 through 10. The narrator directs our attention again to the fact that we know that Saul is dead. It's reiterated here in verse 1. That David has been back in Ziklag for two days. We also read in verse 1, he's just returned from this rage, this, this point of judgment against the Amalekites who had stolen wives and goods and children. And it's already setting up for us a subtle reminder that Saul's sin of disobedience, of destroying this enemy once and for all, And the consequences of that disobedience hang over the entire narrative, causing ongoing trouble for David, for Saul, for Jonathan, for all Israel. Remember that Saul and his descendants have been rejected as kings of Israel because of Saul's disobedience. It's recorded this way in 1 Chronicles 10, 13 and 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command, that specific command of the Lord. And also consulted a medium seeking guidance that way rather than through the way that God had ordained. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse, That's the story we're going to pick up now. Now in verse 2, a man from the Israelite camp approaches David. It's perhaps important to note this journey is a long journey. This man has made a beeline to David. It's 90 to 100 miles from Mount Gilboa in the north down to Ziklag where David is. At least a three-day walk. It would have been easy for David to recognize from a distance that this messenger is bringing bad news. We're told this man is dressed as a mourner. He's showing the customary signs of grief. His clothes are torn. Dust is on his head. He's bringing bad news of some kind. Man bows down before David as he comes and David now asks his first question, where did you come from? The reply describes a soldier in flight from the enemy, in flight from destruction. So David asks a second question, how did the battle go? And the reply is that Israel has been routed. The king and his son have been slain. David asks a third question, perhaps in grief, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And with This man's answer, we start to see some rising tension in the story. What are we to make of the man's answer? Let's look again at verse number 6 through verse 10. And the young man who told him, David said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. That spear is something we're to recognize, remember? That's showed up in our story several times. That's how we know this is very likely Saul. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head. And the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, this man gives a pretty fascinating account of what has happened in the last few moments of Saul's life. He portrays his actions in terms of mercy. As he fulfills the request of the king as he spares him from being killed at the hands of his enemies. He will do it instead. It's a merciful euthanasia. He's also done David a great service. And bringing to him these tokens of Israel's royalty. He had the royal crown and armlet and is giving them now to Saul's clear successor. Surely he's done David a great service, hasn't he? The end of verse 10 leaves us asking, what will David do with his predecessor dead and the crown now at his feet? This is bringing us to the point of highest tension In the text, how would we naturally expect David to respond? How would we respond if our greatest enemy, we found out, is suddenly now off the scene? He's dead. Messenger is essentially tempting David to take up the throne by his own hand. We could even say the great enemy of God's people, Satan himself, seems to be tempting David, God's king... To choose his own way forward. What future account does that bring to your mind? Now we need to pause our walk through the text here for just a moment. And address what skeptics are quick to point out here. Maybe you've noticed this yourself and you have the same question. This man's story seems to contradict in many of the details. What we know that happened from chapter 31. First Samuel 31 says this, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. That means they hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So there seems to be a contradiction. In the biblical account between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. What's happening here? How does Saul really die? Is there a contradiction in our Bibles? From one chapter to the next? How are we to decide what's the correct version of events? Well, there is a clue given to us. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. In verse 9, we might be somewhat surprised to read that this man is an Amalekite. Amalekite. Look back at the scriptures, at your text, and see how many times an Amalekite or Amalekites have been mentioned in our passage. It's three times. That's significant. What do we know about the Amalekites? They are the enemy of God's people. They've been featured in this story of Saul and David and God's people all the way back in Exodus 17 and again in Deuteronomy 25 God had told his people to destroy this group of enemies and they're to be destroyed because as Israel is leaving Egypt they're trying to annihilate all of Israel they have attacked God's people they are a thorn in their side constantly they're a wicked people that are always looking for an opportunity to attack and kill the Israelites Verse 1 told us they're the very people David have just rescued his family from. Now, this is an important tool for understanding Old Testament narratives and their emphasis. We are led to this point to ask, who will we believe? There's no real contradiction here. There's a choice. Will we believe the account of the divine narrator or of what he tells us this Amalekite says? Always, always. Follow the divinely inspired narrator. We actually have the events of 1 Samuel 31. Recorded again in 1 Chronicles 10. Almost verbatim. The narrator is not intending to record. The Amalekite story. In order to tell us the true account of Saul's death. On Mount Gilboa. That's not the point. He reveals this to us to show us something about David. And his righteous response. To this news And to this man, this man is an opportunistic liar seeking reward from the new king of Israel by telling this story and bringing David these tokens of royalty. Think how this must have struck him as an opportunity in that moment when he sees Saul has fallen dead. I can take these to David, David's rival. I will be rewarded greatly. For delivering to David the remnants of the kingdom. To leading him to the throne. Certainly he will promote me. David says as much in 2 Samuel 4, 10 and 11. He says, when one told me, behold Saul is dead. And thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. Which was the reward I gave him for his news. What seems most likely is this man is a part of Israel's army. He's near enough to see the last moments of Saul's life. He steps forward, takes up Saul's crown and armlet just before the Philistines arrive, and he hightails it out of there. He realizes the opportune moment for him, and he seeks to take advantage of it. Secondly, we see the interruption of grief. Look down again at verse 11 now. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, for his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now in verses 11 and 12, the narrator abruptly interrupts his story. He just pauses. And he focuses directly on David's response. That's what's important here. The narrator's making a choice. He's pointing us somewhere. He's pointing us at someone. His point, his choice is to tell us about David's grief instead of his response to what he's just heard from this man. He's not interested right now in moving forward the story. How will David treat this man? What will he do? It instead is a moment for great grief. David tears his clothes, he mourns, he weeps. He declares a fast. His men follow his example. His grief over such great loss is for Saul and for Jonathan, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Do you remember where you were? when you first heard the news about 9-11? Do you remember the feelings that rushed over you over those next several days? For some of you, you're young enough that you've only seen documentaries and stories of that incredibly tragic day in our nation's history. It was days marked with confusion and grief, fear, uncertainty, and overwhelming heartache for how things were seemingly falling apart. It was hard to believe what we were seeing on the news day after day. Something like this on our mainland had never happened before. Our feelings and memories of those days are similar to what David and his men would have been feeling. And yet, for Israel, there's an even greater spiritual component that made this event even more significant and more tragic. Remember, when an ancient nation like this lost in battle, it was thought that that nation's God had been defeated. This wasn't just a physical military struggle. It was a theological one. That's part of what David is weeping over. God's name is being dragged through the mud in the cities of the Philistines. And yet David knew that God was bringing judgment upon Israel for Saul's sin. David's response to this devastating news is completely appropriate and warranted. And yet it highlights something about the character of the king whom God had chosen. Commentator David Payne comments, A lesser man than David would have gloated over the death of Saul's demise. So long, David's bitter enemy. Think of how hard Saul had made David's life. How much that even made David question, God, how can your will be that I sit on the throne and yet day after day after day, I'm running for my life from my father-in-law. A more ambitious man than David would have been equally pleased about the death of Jonathan since he would naturally have succeeded his father had he lived. In a moment, it could have been that David saw this as his great opportunity. As one of his men told him at one of the caves, surely the Lord has delivered this into your hands. But then as now, that wasn't David's conclusion. David could have responded with joy over the death of this evil and persecuting and persistent authority in his life. But David responds with grief. Paul writes in Romans twelve fourteen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He continues in verses 19 and following, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David, in this spirit, grieves over the loss of life, the loss of his fellow soldiers and countrymen, the loss and suffering of his imperfect nation. Surely David knows the weaknesses of his nation, and still he grieves. David even surprisingly grieves over the death of a person his life would be better off without. His life would be so much better without Saul in this world, and yet... He grieves. What does that show us about this king? Here is an uncommon king with an uncommon response in the face of uncommon grief. Third, the absence of fear. Let's pick up our story again in verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, And notice, how this man's nationality is highlighted again. He said, I am the son of a sojourner, one who's lived among the Israelites. I am an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Verse 13, the narrator continues the story. When you first read this text, maybe you read it this week, maybe this is the first time you've seen it read. Could you have anticipated David's response? Do you think the Amalekite messenger anticipated this response? David's fourth question indicates where this is headed for this man. Where do you come from? And he answered, I am a sojourner, the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And with one final question, David says, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David calls for the man to be killed. We should notice the word afraid. How was it you are not afraid to put your hand out against the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David has opportunity to do the same thing and he refuses both times because he says Saul was God's choice to be king. So he would not insist on his own timing to accomplish God's will for his life. David did not hesitate to execute judgment on this man because killing the Lord's anointed was the same thing as rejecting the Lord himself. David perhaps even believes this man is telling the truth. I want you to consider the perspective. David doesn't have the information we have. He doesn't have 1 Samuel 31 and he doesn't have the first two sentences of our chapter. All he knows of the news of the battle is what this man tells him. And we read David's answer in verse 16. He struck him down for killing the Lord's anointed. This man's lie was very foolish. It cost him his life. This man was also a legal resident. He knows better. He'd lived among the Israelites, he knows how Israel had viewed their king. It wasn't just this temporal thing, it was a theological relationship. He lays his hand on the king when Saul's armor bearer wouldn't lay a finger on him, when David wouldn't lay his hand on the king, this man's not afraid to do so for the opportunity of personal gain. Verses 1 and 15 then provide us with bookends as David is acting as God's just and obedient king by striking down the enemies of God's people. Notice that phrase. In 1, he's striking down the Amalekites. In 15, he's striking down the Amalekite. The narrator wants to make the point that David is utterly blameless in taking the throne. He is not zealous for his own name. One commentator notes such a gracious response on the part of one who had suffered so much at Saul's hand is incomprehensible. Apart from a deep commitment to the Lord, David had learned to trust God's will and timing with his life and now he's able to withstand this test as well. David's motive in sparing Saul in the wilderness, in the caves, had been reverence for the one whom the Lord had chosen and anointed. Neither he nor any other human being had the right to end the life of the anointed one of the Lord and then force God's hand. Fourth, the lament for the fallen. Let's read verses 17 now through the end of the chapter. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and his son Jonathan. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. They were mighty in battle. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perished. Verse 18, we read that this poem should be taught to the people of Judah. David's words are recorded. He intends them to be read over and over by Israel, not only to express his own personal grief, but that of Israel as well. This refrain, how the mighty have fallen, echoes again and again in this lament. Grief is godly. It's right to grieve over death. Death is an evil invader, It's a wicked foe that is unnatural and is ever-present because of the curse of sin. It is not to be ignored. It is not to be pushed away in some box and pretend like it hasn't happened. We should be careful to avoid the all-too-common response to minimize or compartmentalize the pain that accompanies death. In verses 22 through 24, David laments over the loss of leadership. And protection for the people of God. Israel has lost courageous warriors and defenders of God's people. Saul's been an excellent military leader. He's won many battles. He secured much for God's people. During the period of the judges, Israel was easily defeated and scattered and taken captive by foreign invaders. They were subject to foreign occupation again and again. And through Saul and Jonathan, God provides men who are brave and swift in battle, providing protection and defense. David turns his grief to his personal loss in verses 25 through 27, as he laments the loss of his closest friend, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Jonathan. Some have tried to read more into these statements than ought to be seen in them. To see friendship here only in the context of a sexual relationship is reductionistic, it's dishonest to the text, and it's wrong in understanding human nature's capacity for godly friendship, for even deep human friendship. In an over-sexualized culture, we tend to equate all expressions of love with some kind of sexual intimacy. Why would we think this is expressing some kind of sexual relationship? It certainly is not. Both of these men are married and have children. Ancient readers of this text would never have concluded what we're trying to conclude or people today are trying to conclude about this text. That couldn't be farther from what is being expressed here. This statement is David's expression of grief over the loss of a great friend who has shown him selfless commitment like no one else in his life. Think about the commitment of Jonathan to David and what that commitment cost him. Jonathan is a uniquely humble man, a godly friend who sought David's good to his own temporal loss of the throne. We're never told once that he grasped after the throne. Even though in the succession of kings that had been set up, it should have been his. Matthew Henry rightly states, few things are more delightful in this world than a true friend that is wise and good, that kindly receives and returns our affections and is faithful to us in all our true interests. Jonathan was totally devoted to David's becoming king. That's unusual, isn't it? Nowhere can one find a better summary of Jonathan's commitment than when he encouraged David in 1 Samuel 23. You will be king over Israel, David, and I will be second to you. This is a man who willingly sets aside his own ambition his rights, his interests in order that David could prosper, in order that God's will would be done in Israel. He willingly sets aside this ambition because of his godly confidence in God's sovereign plan for his life and David's. Here's a man who trusted God and think of where he dies. Right beside his father, defending Israel to the last. He stayed where God had placed him, even after his father threw a spear and tried to kill him, saying he was more committed to David than to his father. He was wrongly committed to David. He still fights by his father's side. Can you feel just a fraction of the emotion of David's lament here? Can you sense in a small way just how great this loss is for Israel, for David? He's lost his most faithful friend and he'll never find one like him the rest of his life. Pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis concludes, therefore the intensity of David's grief is no mystery. The more we love, the more we grieve. Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest and this is good and right and godly. There is a place for sadness in the lives of God's people. Charles Hodge, the great theologian of Princeton, had been married over 27 years to his wife, Sarah. She died at the age of 51 on December 25th, 1849. So every Christmas day would be a day of mourning for him. It was about a year and a half later on his wedding anniversary that he wrote to his brother. He said, some things have changed I think of her now with less of that dreadful sense of bereavement. In other ways, they remain unchanged. No day has intervened that I have not often and literally shed tears to her memory. No week has passed that I have not been twice or more often to her grave. Psalm 34, 18 tells us the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Our Savior weeps deeply over the death of his dear friend Lazarus even though he knows in just moments he'll raise him back to life again. We should weep as Christians over death. We shouldn't push it aside for some false notion of stoic piety, nor rush others to do so. We grieve not as those without hope, yet we rightly grieve. Jesus tells us in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us that God's righteous king displays surprising mercy toward his enemies and grieves over the sin and its consequences for God's people. I want you to know this applies to two kings of Israel, doesn't it? One more so than the other. This is a foreshadowing of our great and final king, Jesus Christ. And the text asks us, what will we, what will be our attitude toward the true king? David models for us mercy and love toward his enemy. He memorializes Saul in surprisingly gracious terms for Israel to rehearse and to remember again and again. He puts it in writing to be sung and read and thought of again. And we even read that and say, well, Is he being honest about the flaws of Saul? David is showing us what it looks like to love your enemies, to be merciful to them. This text urges us to love our enemies. David demonstrates that biblical love demands a choice be made. Biblical love is not primarily about how we feel. It's choosing good for the other, for the honor and glory of God He not only models biblical love toward our enemies, but David is meant to be a signpost pointing forward, pointing our gaze and our attention to the greater son of David. For that king on the cross prays for and forgives his enemies, stating they don't even know what they're doing. So Father, forgive them. Who are we in the story? For the enemies of the king, we're like Saul. Saul. We're Saul in the story, the enemy of God's king, stubborn, self-willed, refusing to obey God's clear commands, and yet our God has shown greater mercy to us than David shows here. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and yet Jesus goes farther and willingly lays down his life for his enemies while we were still sinners." Unbeliever, can you see what our God is like? Can you see his mercy and love so freely demonstrated towards sinners and enemies and rebels? Can you see how God's mercy towards sinners actually reveals and magnifies his nature and glory? He doesn't pursue you because you're lovely, a prize to be won, but to display what he's like, that he is lovely and a king. To be worshipped. He wants a relationship with you if you will only turn to him from your sin, from your insistence on going your own way, and placing your confidence for eternal life in him alone. Believer, in Matthew 5 43, and following, Jesus teaches this same lesson. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven because he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, unbelievers do the same? This is not God-like love, he's saying. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, unbelievers, do this. You therefore are to be perfect. You're to love in this way as your heavenly father is perfect or loves. Are you choosing to love your enemies? How desperately we need the grace of our Christ to obey this command. How desperately we need to rehearse daily how much he loved us to motivate us as rebels and enemies of God now made saints to choose his way. Believer, on whom is God calling you to show Christ like love and mercy, even though they don't deserve it? That's not the point. Are you being called to love a spouse or a sibling, a teacher or roommate, a fellow member of the church, a co worker or a boss? Do you see how his mercy toward you is intended to give you all the grace you need to show mercy and choose love for those who don't deserve it in your life? John writes in 1 John four eleven, Beloved, if God so loved us, he loved us by sending his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. If he loved us this way, we ought also to love one another. Let's ask for his help to obey. Great Father in heaven, we rejoice again in the revelation of God we find here in these pages. There is no God like you who loves and pursues sinners. Who forgives and shows mercy to his enemies. Who is kind and compassionate on his people. Who provides a king for their good, their protection, their leadership, who executes justice on those who sin and would lie. Father, we need your help to be more like your Son. And yet we have all of the grace we need. He's demonstrated to us in the cross that He's more than willing to give us all we need for life and godliness. So this week, may we both be disciplined in our response, and may we be dependent on your grace. May we recognize our responsibility to love our enemies, though that is one of the hardest things you call us to do. You say this is the very character of our Father. Help us then to do what we cannot do on our own. Thank you for this picture of David, and thank you how he points to our greater Christ, the greater Son of David, in whom we have redemption, in whom we walk forward in the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen.